If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis uh, chapter 1. We have a standalone sermon here. Um, Next week, uh, I'll be at Camp Judson, and I won't be here. And Fred McDonald, the executive director of the Dakota Baptist Convention, will be here next week uh, preaching. And... uh, The following week, we're going to start a new book study uh, in Ephesians, and uh, that'll take up probably a good chunk of the year, and then after that, uh, Lord willing, we will uh, go to Genesis. And uh, this morning, however, uh, I want to preach a sermon on the centrality of God's word in the church and in our lives. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Why do we do what we do at Sovereign Grace? Why is our service the way it is? Why do we put an emphasis on expository preaching? The type of preaching that goes to the Word of God and doesn't look to just use it for some end that might be good, but rather goes to the text and tries to bring out the meaning of the text and deliver God's word to God's people. Starting at the beginning of, let's say, the letter to the Ephesians and going to the end. Why do we do it that way as opposed to topical sermons that would just jump from one topic to another? Why a word-centered service? Why not just... Use this pulpit right here. Why not preach from the corner of the room and let the altar have center stage? In a sacramental church, the altar is in the center because the elements are, uh, the communion elements are the bread and the grape juice are on the table. In a sacramental church, eating the elements, the elements themselves strengthen a person spiritually is the belief. The nourishment comes from actually eating it. Why do we call it a table? And why do we make this altar into a pulpit in the center of the room. Why do we do that? What's the difference between a sacramental church and a word-centered church? Part of the answer to that question is, how are God's people nourished? What's the most important thing? Why such an emphasis on the sermons? I mean, are, are on the scriptures. These sermons are so long. Why such emphasis on the scriptures when it's all about Jesus? Someone might say. Why the insistence on biblical counseling over integrated counseling? Integrated counseling would be mixing the scriptures with psychological therapies and teaching. Why not 
women pastors? Why not seek to grow the church by using methods that seek to move a person's emotions with catchy songs? A lot more people would come if they could have a much more vibrant experience and then shorter sermons because it's hard to sit there. So between studies, it's just good to say, why are we the way we are? What's our conviction? Did we just start doing something? This morning, I want to answer those questions. Why must the word be central? And I want to answer it in five ways. This is not exhaustive by any means. We're merely widely answering these questions, all right? Um, and so we're not going to spend a ton of time on either one, any particular one. So as we gather, we must submit ourselves to God in His Word. When we gather, why do we do what we do? Because we must submit ourselves to God in His Word. Look at Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. Now listen to me. In the beginning, God. If we believe that, that there was nothing that was created, before God created it. God in the Father, Son, and Spirit eternally existed. But in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And as you read Genesis 1, look at verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God speaks and there was. Look at verse 6. And God said, and then look at the end of verse 7, and it was so. And then verse 9, and God said, and then at the end of verse 9, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. We learn that as we come and worship as a church, as we live our lives as Christians, we come to submit ourselves underneath the Word of God. Think how insane it is for churches and Christians who live their Christian lives thinking that they want to do these sorts of things and will add God into it and He will help. Think how much pressure there is from the culture on issues of sexuality, on the abortion issue. And so often as Christians, we tremble to stand up for what we believe because we forget that if God has said it, we're to submit under it. We don't just use the Word of God. God is the authority of over all things. So we don't come to church to merely get something. When we come to church, we come to put ourselves under the authority of God, and the authority of God comes to us in His Word. So it's not like we come and say, yeah, this was good. I'm going to remember that. I'm going to keep that. And this, uh, we'll save that for another time. No, we want to eagerly come and understand what this other thing is so that we can submit ourselves under the Word of God. Because you can't separate God from His Word. Imagine if I was to tell one of my children to clean their room and they said no 
And I said, well, you're supposed to honor your father and your mother. And they said, well, your words told me to clean the room, but you didn't. We'd say, what are you talking about? If I say it, it comes with my authority. And it does us no good to try to bifurcate the word of God and God himself. If you don't submit under the word of God, you don't submit to God. They are his words. He is the one we should care to know about everything. And so as we gather, we must submit ourselves to God in his word. In fact, when Adam and Eve fall and they believe the serpent's words over God's words, every terrible, horrible thing that happens in the world happened because man decided not to believe God, not to submit to God and his word. You realize that. How important is it for us to understand that it is good for us to submit ourselves under the word of God. In 1 Peter 5, 5, Peter says it this way. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. He's talking about relationships in the church. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. What does it look like to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God is to bring all the anxieties that you have to him and not to just psychologists or human wisdom. To humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and to glorify God and to be exalted is to come to him as the authority that is good in our life. Secondly, as we gather, we not only gather, we not only submit ourselves under his word, but we gather under Christ's authority. Colossians 1.18, Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. You realize that Christ is the head of the church? You know, we often say, yeah, Jesus Christ, he's my Savior and Lord, and often don't even know what we're saying. So, for example, if Someone says, I'm a believer, but I haven't been baptized. And because baptism uh, doesn't save you, I don't think it's that important. One of the things I want to say is, baptism was Christ's idea. And he's the head of the church. And when you came to him and, and confessed that he's your Lord, part of that is putting yourself under his words. He's the one that thought this was a good idea, even though it doesn't save you. And so often we'll say things like that, and we don't let the rubber meet the road in our own lives. In fact, in Matthew 18, where uh, will go for guidance in church discipline cases. At the end of that, he says, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among you. There I am among them. So when the church is gathered under the word of Christ, that's what it means to be gathered in his name, to be aligned with Christ in his word, Christ says, I'm there. It's with my authority that 
that discipline is being done. And so when we gather, we gather under Christ's authority. Now, when Jesus told his disciples that they must follow him, take up their cross and follow him, here's here's what actually happens, though. They start to follow him, and as they follow him, Jesus goes to a cross, and then he leaves. And the disciples are supposed to follow him, but Christ descends into heaven. So how can they follow him if he's at the right hand of God? Well, the gift of the book of John cannot be overstated. As we get Christ's words to his disciples about these things, turn with me to John 14. Let me show you this. John 14 He's already taught that he's going to go prepare a place for them, that he's going to come again to get them, that he's not lying to them. He wouldn't have told them so if he's not going to. He's getting ready to go to the cross. This is the night he was betraying. Look at verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. See, he's leaving. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, from whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So I'm going, but the helper's coming. And he's going to speak my words to you. You're going to remember everything I spoke to you, which is good for the apostles to know because they're going to write Holy Scripture. They're going to be led by the Spirit of God as they pen the Gospels and the epistles. And then in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, When the Helper comes, whom I'll send from the Father... The spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So this spirit that is coming is called the spirit of truth. Jesus has just taught in chapter 14, he said, I am the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Christ is going to the right hand, but the spirit of Christ, the spirit of truth is coming down. to his people, to write the Bible, to write the New Testament, to have the perfect words of God through human men as the Holy Spirit carries them along. So that the church has its authority in Christ. And someone says, where's Christ? His word is here. It's been given to us by the Spirit. The Spirit enlightens our eyes to it. The only authority, Sovereign Grace Church, or the only authority over Sovereign Grace Church is Christ. And that authority is real and objective in the word of God. You you see, the second you say, The word of God's important, but we also got to do this. We step out from the authority of Christ. Now we're in a dangerous realm of doing things by human wisdom, according to the elemental spirit of this age, just like everyone else. And then... Look at verse, uh, or chapter 16, verse uh, 5. But I am going to him who sent me. None of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, 
He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How does the Spirit do that? Well, in two fundamental ways. First of all, how do we know what sin is but by the Word of God? So we need the Spirit's words to even know what sin is. How do we know about righteousness but from the Word of God? How do we know about the righteousness of Christ? What does the world need? They need to be convicted of sin and then become desperate beggars hungering and thirsting for righteousness somewhere. And then the Spirit says, look here, through the Word of God, look at Christ. Christ is your righteousness. And there's a judgment coming. There will be those found in Christ's righteousness and outside of Christ's righteousness. And we have that in God's Word, and we can't know God's Word apart from the Spirit of truth enlightening our eyes. So if I, as a pastor, go off in my own opinions, in my own thoughts, and my own methodology, tell me why the Spirit of God would get behind that. Tell me why the Spirit of God would move away from Christ's words that are all sufficient for His church. And then in verse 12 of John, or of John 16, He says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The Spirit of God is going to bring us Christ's words in its full. He's going to guide us into all truth, and we have that truth in the canon of Scripture. We don't need God to speak outside of the sufficient word of God. And so, when we gather, the reason why Christ's word is central is because Christ is the head of this church. Christ is the head of the church. I'll never forget a story that John MacArthur told about his first year of ministry. There was a deacon in his church that, uh, whose daughter was going to marry a non-believer, and they wanted him to do the funeral. And this is one of the lead guys in the church. And he thought, boy, I'm going to lose my job quickly here. And he says, I won't do that. And the guy says, well, I guess I respect that conviction. I'll find someone else to do it. And then MacArthur says, well, whose church is this? And the guy says, well, it's Christ's church. And then he says, well, then I think we should do what Christ wants done in this church. To honor Christ is to submit ourselves under Christ. Thirdly, we must remember, as we gather, we must remember that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And you've got to understand, when Paul talks about salvation, he's not just merely talking about the moment you're born again. He's talking about justification, being found not guilty the moment you believe and he's also talking about being conformed into the image of Christ through sanctification that will end up in the culmination of your salvation when you never sin again in glorification. And the power of God to bring that about is in his word. Someone might say, well, it's in the gospel. Well, that's what the whole Bible is. The whole 
Bible gives us the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Testament is written about Christ. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you're going to find eternal life and you don't know that they speak of me. And this, the one who's saying this is called what? The Word. He is the truth incarnate. You can't separate the truth of God from God. All wisdom is bound up in Jesus Christ. All wisdom is bound up in Jesus Christ. So to take time away from Christ would be to steal and to be poor shepherds and not feeding well. Do you realize that the church doesn't exist apart from the gospel? See, the Roman Catholic Church puts itself, they're going to say their tradition and the word is equal. But really, they're the only ones that can interpret the scripture. So they put themselves as an authority over the Bible, over God's word. And the difference between a Bible church is we recognize the church can't even exist to do anything apart from the word. The gospel is what brings about a Christian. Well, what's the church? The gathering of the saints. It makes no sense to have any authority over the word of God when the word of God is the very thing that creates the church of God. Romans 1.14, Paul says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what do they do? They suppress the truth. They push the truth down. But Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it's the power of God unto salvation. As we gather, we must, must fourthly Remember that the word is the Christian's nourishment for life. Do you realize this? Listen to Jesus in Matthew 4, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why do we do expository preaching? Because every word is what we need for life. This is what the Word does. The Word creates life. All the way from Genesis 1 to your life now, I don't care what you know, what you can answer on a test, what theology you know in your head, if you don't, have nourishment by believing by faith in the word of God, you cannot have life. 
You would be so weak if you went a week without eating. And yet so often we'll become malnourished. We don't come to the word of God as though it's life to us. But you've all experienced it, haven't you? Haven't you got so empty that you just feel bitterness rising up in your heart? That you begin, doubts start to creep in. You start saying, how do I even know what I know if it's true or not? And the Spirit of God tells you, you haven't been in the Word. You're falling away from the living God. You haven't been exhorting one another every day as long as it's called today. You're being deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Maybe you're there today. Maybe you come in with your face so low, you don't even know if you're a Christian. You don't even know what's true anymore. My question is to you, have you been feasting on the Word of God because you can't have spiritual life any other way? Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 8 in that text. In verse 2, let me, let me put it in the context. Moses says to the people of Israel, and you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So why did God lead them into the wilderness and let them look like they're going to starve for a moment? Why did he do that? He's trying to teach them, you live by me. If they had an abundance, they would think, I live by my own wisdom. Look, look, look at all that I gathered up. But God was showing them, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And even the bread that they're eating is coming straight from God. That's what he's teaching them. How often do we run to all these other places and take human wisdom and human ideas and search the internet. We're trying to settle our soul down. And yet, in the beginning, God. You, you see how crazy it is? We'll leave our creator and we'll go after worldly wisdom. And often, only later, come back to the word. So Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.14, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Here's the thing. Someone that says, yeah, you don't just need the word of God. That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit. They go together. You got the word over here, and then he gives you the spirit, and the word tells you the main things. And then the Spirit's going to tell you what you really need to know in the moment. Important words, more relevant words in the here and now. And so some churches are going to say that they're more spiritual because they're waiting for a new word from God, a more contemporary word. But here's my question Who wrote the Bible? The Holy Spirit wrote the Bible. Did he not? 
What does Paul mean when he says walk with the Spirit of God? Walk in the Spirit of God, not according to your flesh? What he means is walk with the inspired words of the Spirit of God. Otherwise, you don't know where he is. What are you supposed to do? Walk around looking for him? How are you going to walk with him? He has spoken in the word. And does the Holy Spirit help you in the moment when you don't know what to do and you're praying? He does. But how does he help you? He brings to mind the word of God that's been implanted in your heart. And through that word, you get guidance as to know what to do or what not to do. The most spiritual church is not the most charismatic church. The most spiritual church is the church that takes the spirit the most serious. What did the spirit come to do? Convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to bring us the words of Jesus, to give us the scripture. So we must remember that we are nourished through the Bible. We're equipped for every good work from the scriptures. I'm just trying to figure out what to cut out here. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Solomon talking to his sons. There's nothing more important in your life than you guard your heart, for out of your heart comes your entire life. Your entire life springs forth out of your heart. Your heart is where you think. Your heart is where you desire, where your emotions come from, where your actions come from. And he says there's nothing more important than guarding your heart. And then you read all of Proverbs 4 in its context, and you underline every imperative, every command, 29 times, 29 imperatives saying, here, remember, store up, don't leave. Don't leave what? The word of God, my commandments. They are life to those who find them. And here's how they become life to us. The devil knows the scripture and does not have spiritual life. As we gather, we must remember that the Christian life is a life of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, well, the devil believes that, and that he rewards those who seek him. The devil doesn't believe that. Faith is described as those who believe that God exists and that he's worth it, that he's good, that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. Hebrews 4.2, we read about people who heard a message, but it did them no good. Hebrews 4.2 says, For good news came to us just as it did to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listen. For we who have believed have entered that rest. Here's what is so practical about the Christian life. It's what we forget. You can't live off what you know. It's not going to turn to spiritual power in your life until you unite what you know with faith. Until you grab onto it and you cling to it and you rest in it, the Spirit of God will not work 
powerfully in your life. You can sit here and say, well, I'm addicted to pornography and I'm never going to stop. I've heard Christians talk like this. I'm, I'm never going to be able to get over this. Well, here's the thing. What does the scriptures teach us? That Christ not only died for your, to forgive you, but also to give you power to ki kill sin. So to say, I'm never going to get over this is the opposite of faith. And what Paul calls us to in Romans chapter 6 is to consider ourselves dead to sin, to believe that in Christ you have power to kill sin in your life. And when you cling by faith to the Word of God, you'll see spiritual life in your life. I feel like the lion's share of all biblical counseling is sitting down with people who already know what you're going to tell them. They just don't know why it's working. And the main thing I'm telling them and showing them is you haven't been clinging to what you know in your head. See, we expect knowledge to just automatically turn in to spiritual power. And yet Satan has that knowledge. But what Satan doesn't have is faith. And so, I probably overquote this. I say it all the time, but it's so, it's so clear. It's such a clear statement to us in Galatians 2. In verse 20, everyone knows the first half of this verse. Most people don't know the second half. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But then Paul gives us such a practical statement about himself and his life. In the life I live now, that's the life you're living, is now, the life I live now in the flesh how does he do it? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, yesterday, if you fought like crazy the fight of faith to cling to what is true, and the Lord sustained you through that faith, you might be tempted to wake up and think, I fought so good yesterday, I can probably ride through today in my own strength and my own wisdom. And uh, But you can't. That's why Paul says, I need to die daily. I need to remember I've been crucified with Christ daily. And what does he remember? The life I live by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's one of the few times Paul applies the gospel personally rather than collectively. And I think he had to do that because he persecuted the church. If I'm the devil, I'm coming to Paul every day trying to discourage him with this. You remember Apollo's face as that stone was hitting him in the side of his head? Remember the pain he felt? He was being faithful there. And you were holding his garments as he was being murdered. A lot of people, when that temptation comes, might crumble and say, I'm no, I'm no good for nothing. I give up. I'm worthless. But he says, that Paul died with Christ. I'm a new Paul. The life I live now, I live, I'm fighting by faith to believe that the Son of God loves me and died for me. And the reason why the Word must be central in the church is because the whole Christian life is lived by faith in God's Word. So if you don't have God's Word, you can't exercise faith, which is what the Christian life is. 
It's a life lived clinging to God's word. That's why Peter starts out his letter by saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you on the day of Christ. Because he knows it's a faith battle. That they got to get ready to fight with their mind daily. So, it's our commitment, and you, this church is a congregational church. If you ever have a leader or a pastor that begins to take the centrality of the word away, you should get rid of him and hire someone that'll have it central because that's what you need. That's what glorifies God. That's the only thing that's right. That's the only thing that glorifies Christ. That's the only thing that can save a person. That's the only thing that can bring about sanctification. And so, Lord willing, by God's grace and your accountability, myself, Scott, this church, will seek to feed you what Christ has called us to feed you, and that is his word, the gospel, over and over and over again and never stop till Christ returns. Every time we have communion, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. We don't stop giving the word of God. Father, I thank you that you have given us your word Father, I thank you that you've called me to be in a position where I don't have to be creative, but rather I need to be faithful. And Father, I thank you for all the means of grace, all the brothers and sisters in Christ that can help hold me accountable. Father, I pray that you would forgive us for ways we treat your word as secondary. And when we do that, we treat you as secondary, for we can never separate your word from your person. And Father, let us never become a church that gets big heads and learns theology and quits exercising faith in those truths because, Father, we know that when we exercise faith according to your word, we ought to be on our faces and humble and broken because of our sin and our need for Christ, that we'd be people who pray, knowing our great need. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think I left my papers downstairs on the copier, maybe, for the, my short report about the um, SBC convention. <clears throat> so it, it was an interesting experience being, being able to go to Anaheim, California, and for the first time sit through the uh, annual meeting there, um, where our church brought four voting delegates uh, wanting to ensure that uh, the Southern Baptist doesn't leave or become unfaithful uh, to God's uh, word. And so uh, Laura and I and Sam and Naomi Bjorkman represented Sovereign Grace uh, in uh, Anaheim. And it was a unique experience in that while I'm sitting through the two-day-long meeting, I'm also on Twitter reading the headlines uh, coming forth from the meeting. Thanks, honey. She's a good helper. Um, and the headlines were alarming. And I don't want to make uh, less than what they were, but sometimes if you're there and then you read the news headline, you kind of say, well, I, I don't know. 
Maybe that was clickbait. So the headlines I've been reading for the last three years uh, were about going back a couple years ago to a resolution where it was voted on, and I think largely the people there didn't even know what CRT was at the time. Uh, they voted that critical race theory, while it was uh, at odds with Scripture, could be a helpful tool, analytical tool, which was a terrible resolution. And so throughout that year, uh, it was critiqued, and rightly so. And then last year, they walked that back, and now this year, they, they never even mentioned CRT. It never even came up during those two days, but it's concerning, and I have concern. Uh, CRT is, critical race theory is at odds with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It divides, it does not unite. Um, and then last year, what was brought before the committee, I'm telling you the drama headlines and then kind of want to respond to them, uh, was that Rick Warren uh, at Saddleback Church, they had ordained uh, some women pastors. And in fact, uh, he's going to retire. And the man taking over, him and his wife, are both going to be pastors. And uh, they're a part of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so there was a motion last year that they would be removed, uh, that the credentials committee, the ones that decide who can vote and who can't, should remove their credentials. Now, denominational life is slow. The Southern Baptists only exist for two days a year. And last year at the convention... And then this year. So you, it's not like you can pick up business a month from now. So the credentials committee had that. And what they did is they went and talked to Rick Warren. And Rick Warren said something like this. He said, um, we believe that only men can be elders in a church, function as an elder pastor in a church. But we believe that women can have the gift of, the, of a pastor. And so he tried to create a difference between the office of pastor and the gifting of pastor. And so he said in his church, uh, no woman would have authority over a man. They would be over women's ministry or whatever. And rightfully so, that's not a satisfactory answer. And so the job of the Credentials Committee was to go to the Baptist Faith message and see what it says. Well, back in 2000, the Baptist Faith message said that the pastorate must be held by men. And they said it didn't speak to the uh, point on... Uh, the gifting of a pastor. And so the credentials committee came this year and said they wanted the president to appoint a committee to define what the Baptist faith and message meant when it said pastor. Now at this point, there's groans over the 8,000 people in attendance. And there's open microphones where people can get up and, and talk. And Al Mohler got up, the president of the seminary I went to, and basically said the Baptist faith and message meant what the, Baptist, what the writers of the Baptist faith and message meant in the year 2000. And if we have to appoint a committee to define every word, we won't have a convention. Which, after he said that, erupted in applause. And I leaned over to Sam and I said, it doesn't look like there's going to be women pastors anytime soon if this response, well, about maybe 20 minutes later, Rick Warren is given a free mic. And you can go watch it for yourself if you want, but essentially he says, before a man is hung, they usually hand him a microphone. 
And so with humor, he says, I'm not going to defend myself. I realize I'm probably going to get kicked out of the convention, but I just want to write a love letter, speak a love letter to the Southern Baptists. And within that love letter, he basically said, without the Southern Baptists, I couldn't do this, I couldn't do that. And he pointed to all of his achievements to which people stood up and applauded, applauded him. And as I'm watching on Twitter, guess what gets the run? <laughs> the Southern Baptist stood up and gave a standing ovation to Rick Warren and all four women as pastors. The Southern Baptist Convention is gone. Okay, well, <laughs> that's not quite the full story of what happened. Is it concerning that they're asking the question, what does it mean uh, for a pastor, uh, or what does it mean when the Baptist faith and message talks about a pastor? Yes, we are concerned, and, and uh, we are following the response uh, to what happens next year as that committee is going to come back uh, with something. But there's a lot of stuff online that says if you want to be aligned with the liberals, then stay in the convention. Uh, if you want to get rid of the Bible, uh, then stay in the convention. Headlines reading like that. Are, are we concerned? Do we want to show up and have an influence? We do. Could there be a day where we're not a Southern Baptist? Yes, that's true. There's only one thing over this church, and that's the Word of God. Uh, now, a couple of helpful uh, points here. What it means to be Baptist is different than what it means to be, let's say, Methodist. A Methodist is a connectional denomination, which means the denomination has authority over the local body. For example, the denomination owns the building. And so when there's rumblings in a connectionalist denomination, the congregants ought to be really concerned now because they can come into your church and have influence. What it means to be Baptist and to believe what the Bible says about authority over the church, there is no authority over the local church above the congregation itself. Southern Baptists have no authority over Sovereign Grace Church. So what is the Southern Baptist Convention then. It's people that have decided to cooperate for the sake of missions, for training pastors in seminaries, um, and, and for planning churches are the big things. Now, here's what we can do, and I think what we'll recommend. We can decide how we give our money however we want. The aspects of the Southern Baptist Convention that concern us, we can just not fund. We can put our funds, um, for example, with the IMB if we want, an international mission board. Mark and Parker Phillips are going to be here in a couple weeks speaking, and, and they have started their own ministry in Africa and are going to be asking us for our support. We can take a, a lot of that foreign mission money, if we would like, and give to Mark and Parker. We could just give to, let's say, Southern Seminary and Midwestern Seminary and not the other seminaries. All that to say, we're looking at it. We know what's going on. We're committed to faithfulness. There's no one here saying we're dyed in the wool Southern Baptist. We have to be. Uh, but there's also in our minds no hurry just to take off when we can really control how much we're a part of it. And I know I said it would be short, and I'm sorry it's taking longer. Uh, the biggest, the hardest part about leaving the Southern Baptist, if I'm honest with you, uh, would be two things. I got a great education at Southern Seminary that I'm thankful for, and the lion's share of those professors are all still there. And during the seminary reports, uh, the seminaries are growing. There's reason for encouragement there. Um, 
But the biggest is the Dakota Baptist Convention uh, that we've been participating in for some years now. And the relationships we built with other like-minded pastors. It might surprise you to find out that the strong churches in the Dakotas are the Reformed Baptist churches in the Dakotas. Uh, that a lot of them have pastors from Southern Seminary. And, and we were surprised when we started uh, fellowshipping with the convention at how many churches actually shared uh, a lot of our theological convictions. And those are the churches that are growing in the Dakotas. Uh, Scott, we're, we've been able to have influence. Scott is on the executive committee, or the executive board, which is the top board. And Scott's not a pushover. And, and I had the privilege to speak at a marriage. Uh, they do a wives and, and a pastors and their wives marriage retreat where I got to do biblical counseling training to the pastors. Uh, I got to be on a task force, what's the vision for the Dakota Baptists in the next five years? And really, in one sense, put my foot down and say, what do we believe? Let's write it out. Let's see, uh, let's put teeth to our convictions. And so the saddest part for me would be we've built good relationships here in the Dakotas. There's pastors of churches of 15 people that don't have seminary educations. They're doing the best they can, and, and they need help. It's to our interest, I think, um, to continue uh, as long as we can uh, with a clear conscience to help them. We met Matt that's on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation uh, he's, a, he's a missionary on the reservation. Talking to him, they've been praying for counseling on the reservation. Did you know there's 50,000 people on Pine Ridge? Double the size of Aberdeen. Almost no inroads. Very, very little success. He does 46 funerals a year. One year he did like 73. Most of them are people in their 30s, teenagers, committing suicide. This is in South Dakota. But through our connection down there, we have an opportunity as Sovereign Grace to potentially connect and do ministry on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. So it's those sorts of things. It's not all bad. The headlines are all, are all bad. <laughs> That's what people want to talk about is the drama. But the 40 IMB missionaries that couldn't even show their faces because they're behind vellum that were, had two minutes to tell about where they were serving. I didn't see any tweets about that. These are young men and women that are risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. And we're not talking about that. You know, so that's where we're at. We're happy to talk to you. We're taking it really serious. And, 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 and we're happy to have any discussion with any that would have uh, concern. Um, so, anything else I'm missing? Basically, that can start a dialogue if you're interested. So, I forgot maybe to tell you the main thing. I don't want to <laughs> leave this out. So, when we went down there, we had a candidate for president we voted for. Uh, he ended up losing 60 to 38 percent. He would have represented the more, I would say, really conservative uh, uh, part of the Southern Baptist. And really, our, our beliefs line right up with him. And, but he's kind of been one of the warriors <laughs> fighting within the convention. Uh, to give you an idea, the, the sitting president it found out that most of his ser sermons were plagiarized uh, shortly after he became the president of the convention last year. The, most of the sermons on his website were plagiarized. Um, and uh, Tom Askell, the guy I voted for, showed up giving away free books saying, brothers, we are not plagiarists. <laughs> so there, there's a wide gap. And 
And just to give this perspective that Sam pointed out to me too, there's 14.9 million Southern Baptist members out there, supposedly. Uh, voting for president at Anaheim, California, about 6,000 ballots were cast. And there was 900 votes separating, you know, the, the two candidates um, in, in the first run. So not very big representation at the convention <laughs> to the amount of Southern Baptists that are out there. And Rick Warren's church is in that county in Anaheim, and they've planted 91 churches in that county. So I think they were well represented. Just to give perspective on, I, I don't want to pretend like a vote didn't happen, and because, yeah, I would have loved for Tom Askell to win, but he didn't. And, and I just want full disclosure there. But thank God for his truth. <laughs>